Chapter Twenty Five of the Gorilla Hunters by R. M. Ballantyne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Adele de Pignoroles. Chapter Twenty Five. I have a desperate encounter and a narrow escape. The happiness that now beamed in the faces of Makaruru, Okandaga, and Najami was a sufficient reward to us for all the trouble we had taken and all the risk we had run on their account. Poor Najami was exceedingly grateful to us. She sought by every means in her power to show this, and among other things, hearing us call her son by the name of Puggy, she at once adopted it, to the immense amusement and delight of Peterkin. After the first excitement of our meeting had subsided somewhat, we consulted together as to what we should now do. On the one hand, we were unwilling to quit the scene of our hunting triumphs and adventures. On the other hand, Makaruru and his bride were anxious to reach the mission stations on the coast and get married in the Christian manner. "'Our opposing interests are indeed a little perplexing,' said Jack, after some conversation had passed on the subject. "'No doubt, Mac, you and Mabongo with his friends might reach the coast safely enough without us. But then what should we do without an interpreter?' Our poor guide, whose troubles seemed as though they would never end, sighed deeply and glanced at his bride with a melancholy countenance as he replied, "'Mill go with you, Massa, and Okandaga will go to the coast and wait there for me to come.' "'Ha!' ejaculated Peterkin. "'That's all very well, Mac, but you'll do nothing of the sort. "'That plan won't do, so we'll have to try again.' "'I agree with you, Peterkin,' observed Jack. "'That plan certainly will not do, but I cannot think of any other that will, "'so we must just exercise a little self-denial for once, "'give up all further attacks on the wild beasts of Africa, "'and accompany Mac to the coast.' "'Could we not manage a compromise?' said I. "'What be a compromise?' asked Makaruru, "'who had been glancing anxiously from one to another as we conversed.' Peterkin laid hold of his chin, pursed up his mouth, and looked at me with a gleeful leer. "'There's a chance for you, Ralph,' said he. "'Why don't you explain?' "'Because it's not easy to explain,' said I, considering the best way in which to convey the meaning of such a word. "'A compromise, Mac, is—is is a bargain, a compact, at least so Johnson puts it.' "'Yes,' interposed Peterkin. "'So you see, Mac, when you agree with the chater to get him an elephant tusk, that's a compromise, according to Johnson.' "'No, no, Mac,' said I quickly. "'Peter Ken is talking nonsense. "'It's not a bargain of that kind. "'It's, uh, uh, you know every question has two sides.' "'Yes, Massa.' "'Well, suppose you took one side.' "'Yes, Massa.' "'And suppose I took the other side.' "'Then suppose we were to agree to forsake our respective sides "'and meet, as it were, halfway, and thus hold the same middle course.' "'Aye, down the middle and up again. "'That's it, Mac,' again interrupted Peter Ken. "'That's a compromise.' "'In short, to put it in another and clearer light, "'suppose that I were to resolve to hit you an awful whack on one side of your head, "'and suppose that Ralph were to determine to hit you a frightful bang on the other side, "'then suppose that we were to agree to give up those amiable intentions, "'and instead thereof to give you, unitedly, "'one tremendous smash on the place where, if you had one, "'the bridge of your nose would bleed. "'That would be a compromise.' "'Oh, ha-ha-ha!' <laughs> shouted our guide, "'rolling over on the grass and splitting himself with laughter.' For Makaruru, like most of his race, was excessively fond of a joke, no matter how bad, and was always ready on the shortest notice to go off into fits of laughter, if he had only the remotest idea of what the jest meant. He had become so accustomed to at last expect something jocular from Peterkin, that he almost invariably opened his mouth to be ready whenever he observed our friend make any demonstration that gave indication of his being about to speak. From the mere force of sympathy, Mbongo began to laugh also and I know not how long the two would have gone on, had not Jacks checked them by saying, 
I suspect we are not very well fitted to instruct the unenlightened mind. Oh, hi, sighed Makaruru, gathering himself up and sitting down to listen. And it seems to me that you'll have to try again, Peterkin, some other mode of explanation. Very good, by all means, said our friend. Now, back, look here. You want to go there, pointing to the coast with his left hand, and we want to go there, pointing to the interior with his right hand. Now, if we both agree to go there, pointing straight before him with his nose, that will be a compromise. Do you understand? Oh, yes, massa, me comprehend now. Exactly so, said I. That's just it. There is a branch of this river that takes a great bend away to the north before it turns toward the sea, is there not? I think I have heard you yourself say so before now. Yes, massa, all right. Well, let us go by that branch. We shall be a good deal longer on the route, but we shall be always nearing the end of our journey, and at the same time shall pass through a good deal of new country, in which we may hope to see much game. Good, said Ralph. You have wisdom with you for once, Ralph. It seems feasible. What say you, Mac? I think it a capital plan. Yes, massa, it am coptipal plan, sure enough. The plan being thus arranged and agreed to, we set about the execution of it at once, and ere long our two canoes were floating side by side down the smooth current of the river. The route which we had chosen led us, as I had before suspected, into the neighborhood of the gorilla country, and I was much gratified to learn from Abongo, who had travelled over an immense portion of southwestern Africa, that it was not improbable we should meet with several of those monstrous apes before finally turning off towards the coast. I say that I was much gratified to learn this, but I little imagined that I was at that time hastening towards a conflict that well-nigh proved fatal to me, and the bare remembrance of which still makes me shudder. It occurred several weeks after the events just related. We had gone ashore for the purpose of hunting, our supply of provisions chancing at that time to be rather low. Feeling a desire to wander through the woods in solitude for a short time, I separated from my companions. I soon came to regret this deeply, for about an after afterwards I came upon the tracks of a gorilla. Being armed only with my small bore double rifle, and not being by any means confident of my shooting powers, I hesitated some time before making up my mind to follow the tracks. At first I thought of retracing my steps and acquainting my comrades with the discovery I had made, but the little probability there was of my finding them within several hours deterred me. Besides, I felt ashamed to confess that I had been afraid to prosecute the chase alone. So, after pondering the matter a little, I decided on advancing. Before doing so, however, I carefully examined the caps of my rifle, and loosened my long hunting-knife in its sheath. Then I cautiously followed up the track, making as little noise as possible, for I was well aware of the watchfulness of the animal I was pursuing. The footprints at first were not very distinct, but ere long I came on a muddy place where they were deeply imprinted, and my anxiety was somewhat increased by observing that they were uncommonly large, the largest I had ever seen, and that, therefore, they had undoubtedly been made by one of those solitary and gigantic males, which are always found to be the most savage. I had scarcely made this discovery when I came unexpectedly on the gorilla itself. It was seated at the foot of a tree about fifty yards from the spot where I stood, the space between us being comparatively clear of underwood. In an instant he observed me, and rose, at the same time giving utterance to one of those diabolical roars which I have before referred to as being so terrible. I halted, and felt an irresistible inclination to fire at once, but remembering the oft-repeated warnings of my companions, I restrained myself. At that moment I almost wished, I freely confess, that the gorilla would run away. But the monster had no such intention. Again uttering his horrible roar, he began slowly to advance, 
at the same time beating his drum-like chest with his double fist. I now felt that my hour of trial had come. I must face the gorilla boldly and act with perfect coolness. The alternative was death. As the hideous creature came on, I observed that he was considerably larger than the biggest we had yet seen, but strange to say, this fact made no deeper impression upon me. I suppose that my whole mental and nervous being was wound up to the utmost possible state of tension. I felt that I was steady and able to brave the onset, but I was not aware of the severity of the test to which I was destined to be subjected. Instead of coming quickly on and deciding my fate at once, the savage animal advanced slowly, sometimes a step or two at a time, and then pausing for a moment ere it again advanced. Sometimes it even sat down on its haunches for a second or two, as if the weight of its overgrown body were too much for its hind legs but it did not cease all that time to beat its chest and roar and twist its features into the most indescribable contortions i suppose it took nearly five minutes to advance to within twelve yards of me but those five minutes seemed to me an hour i cannot describe the mental agony i endured when within ten yards of me i could restrain it no longer i raised my rifle aimed at its chest and fired with a terrible roar it advanced again i fired but without effect for the gorilla rushed upon me in despair i drew my hunting knife and launched it full at the brute's chest with all my might i saw the glittering blade enter it as the enormous paw was raised to beat me down i threw up my rifle to ward off the fatal blow and at the same moment sprang to one side in the hope of evading it the stock of the rifle was shattered to pieces in an instant and the blow which would otherwise have fallen full on my head or chest was diverted slightly and took effect on my shoulder the blade of which was smashed as i was hurled with stunning violence to the ground for one moment i felt as if i were falling headlong down a precipice the next i became unconscious on recovering i found myself lying on my back at the bottom of what appeared to be a large pit i must have lain there for a considerable time for i felt cold and stiff and when i attempted to move my wounded shoulder caused me unutterable anguish i knew however that i must certainly perish if i did not exert myself so with much difficulty i crept out of the pit the first object that met my eyes on rising to my feet was the carcass of my late antagonist, which on examination I found, though badly wounded by both bullets, had eventually been killed by the knife. It must have died almost immediately after giving me the blow that had hurled me into the pit. I had not observed this pit, owing to the screen of bushes that surrounded it, but I have now no doubt that it was the means of saving my life. My recollections of what followed this terrible adventure are exceedingly confused. I remember that I wandered about in a state of dreamy uncertainty, endeavouring to retrace my steps to our encampment. I have a faint recollection of meeting, to my surprise, with Jack and Peterkin, and of their tender expressions of sympathy, and I have a very vivid remembrance of the agony I endured when Jack set my broken shoulder-blade and bandaged my right arm tightly to my side. After that all was a confused dream, in which all the adventures I had ever had with wild beasts were enacted over again, and many others besides that had never taken place at all. Under the influence of fever, I lay in a state of delirium for many days in the bottom of the canoe, and when my unclouded consciousness was at last restored to me, I found myself lying in a bed, under the hospitable roof of a missionary, the windows of whose house looked out upon the sea. And now, reader, the record of our ventures is complete. During the few weeks that I spent with the kind missionary of the cross, I gained strength rapidly, and amused myself penning the first chapters of this book. Makaruru and Okandaga were married, and soon became useful members of the Christian community on that part of the African coast. Mabango and his friends also joined the missionary for a time, but ultimately returned to the interior, 
whither i have no doubt they carried some of the good influences that they had received on the coast along with them king jambai proved faithful to his engagement all our packages and boxes of specimens arrived safely at the coast and when unpacked for examination and displayed in the large schoolroom of the station the gorillas and other rare and wonderful animals besides curious plants altogether formed a magnificent collection the like of which has not yet been seen in great britain and probably never will be when i was sufficiently restored to stay in the voyage jack and peterkin and i embarked in a homeward-bound trading vessel and taking leave of our kind friends at the coast and of makaruru and okandaga who wept much at the prospect of separation from us we set sail for old england farewell said i as we leaned over the vessel's side and gazed sadly at the receding shore farewell to you kind missionaries and faithful negro friends i added peterkin with a deep sigh and fare you well ye monstrous apes gorillas fare you well the end end of chapter twenty five recording by adelde pinaroles end of the gorilla hunters by r m ballantyne thank you for listening